And welcome to this live episode of To The Moon, Allison. So glad you're joining me today. I'm your host, Allison Martine Hubbard. I'm the host and the author of contemporary romance series, The Bourbon Books, and works of speculative and science fiction and fantasy. I'm so excited to be joined today by urban fantasy author, David R. Slayton. Hello, David. Hello. Thanks for having me on, Allison. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you today about, well, really two books, because we start with White Trash Warlock, and then this new release, the lovely Trailer Park Trickster, which, David, when did this come out? It's really recent, isn't it? Yeah, just last week on October 12th. Okay, see, I wasn't sure because, so I'm holding up this beautiful book and pretending I read it. I listen to it. I have no time to actually do this very often, so if I can get it audio, I do. And so I was really excited because it was actually even included in my Audible subscription because I had to buy the last one because I didn't want to start a series midway. I don't do that if I can help it. So do you want to tell the audience just a little bit about White Trash Warlock and Trailer Park Trickster while I sip my Blackberry tea? <laughs> sure. So White Trash Warlock is the story of Adam Lee Binder. Like me, he's a high school dropout from Guthrie, Oklahoma, and he's a broke gay witch living in a trailer park there. He's estranged from his family, but when his sister-in-law becomes possessed by a spirit here in Denver, where I live now, Adam is called in, to, called in to help and rides to the rescue. He's happy to say, I told you so, and he's a good guy, and even though he has problems with his family, he's going to do you know help out, but things are much worse than he expects. And it requires him to contend with powers way, way beyond his, you know, pay grade, including the his first love, the elf that broke his heart. The elf that broke his heart. I mean, that's just the tagline right there. Just going, hey, by the way, you've got to deal with your brother who uh, put you in. Well, let's just say a mental institution. Is that a ba good way to say what Liberty House was a mental institution? Your mom who really never stuck up for you. I mean, I guess he he has no hard feelings against his sister-in-law, but who he hasn't actually ever met. But, you know, when she's possessed, you're not going to say, meh, I'm not going to come. You, you, you ride to the rescue whether you care or not. You, you just got to do it because Adam's still pretty much a good guy. I really enjoyed getting to get to know him and some of the other characters we meet along the way. And then he comes back in this one. Do you want to give us a little blurb about Trailer Park Trickster? Sure. At the end of White Trash Warlock, there's a big hook or cryptic warning that calls Adam back to Guthrie. So he jumps in his car and rides, doesn't tell anybody, including Vic, who he has started a relationship with. Vic is rightly pissed off about that, but yeah. also being a good guy and caring about Adam, he's going to pursue him. So Vic heads out for Denver to, or sorry, for, to Guthrie to catch up to Adam. But unfortunately, his road trip is hijacked by Argent, the Elven Queen of Swords, and anytime you take a road trip with Argent, there's going to be a lengthy detour through the spirit realm. So I got to write my favorite thing in the world, which was a Vic Argent road trip. <laughs> they are they are probably the penultimate odd couple. And there's some line in there where he's like, they're, they're being mean to each other. And he's like, you like me. Yeah, you like me. <laughs> and it was just perfection. Uh, Laurie Schoenfeld says, that's an inviting setup, David. This sounds amazing. And Laurie, these books are just, they're so much fun. And I say they're urban fantasy I know that's kind of a weird term because it does have some of those high fantasy elements when we've got elven queens and these courts of elves who have their own 
politics and infighting and all of that and it's dragging us in but especially in trailer park trickster you've got this juxtaposition of these meth heads and and these white trash families with all sorts of sad things going on in their history and it just drags you into that in such a perfect way and then vix off going hi there are elves fighting over power and factions and whether or not they should oh i don't know wipe out humanity so we have both these really immediate problems but also things that are like hey even if you aren't involved in the binder family drama you're still going to be kind of caring about whether or not the elves say humanity you guys are done yeah and i love setting up that juxtaposition so and i should say clearly some people are like oh do you really want to call it white trash warlock and <laughs> that's that's where I grew up. The trailer that Adam describes, that setting, that's the trailer in the woods where I come from, outside of Guthrie, on the lake, um, Lake Liberty, the swampy end, right? So that's a, that's my upbringing. That's my my people. Um, this summer, I had cause to go home, and I brought my partner. We're driving out there, and you've got the piles of burning trash, and you've got these hollowed-out trailers that are just a shell in the woods in the rain, and I'm like slowing the car and like, oh, look, those are the irises that my grandma planted. And they've just taken over that hillside. And my poor partner is like, roll up the window. Don't you stop the car. <laughs> just <laughs> keep driving, David. These are my people. <laughs> so, yeah. So Adam's family is drawn greatly from and his experiences are drawn greatly from my family and my experiences. Well, and you handle it really lovingly, too, because there's a lot of tongue in cheek there, but. There's also this constant comparison when Adam spends time, especially in the first book, in Colorado and this different life that his brother has gone on to make that is in many ways night and day. And you point out Denver's not, it's not New York City, but it's still very, very different from what they grew up in. Everything from the, I think he calls it like a wedding cake house to the kind, oh, Jennifer Ann Gordon says, I love the titles. I grew up white trash too. Um, and I guess it is one of those terms that if you're applying it to yourself and lovingly, and not putting down those people necessarily. You can get away with a little bit more, but I do understand that there'd be pushback. I can see that some people will be like, hey, we don't we don't talk that way about our people or about other people. Well, there's a class distinction inside of it too. And it's something that Adam and Vic discuss in the first book when Adam calls himself white trash and Vic has something to say about that. Part of it's how Adam has incorporated the stigma of how he grew up, which again is something that I had incorporated like him, I'm a high school dropout. Like him, I had to find my way in the world without, well, just basic things like what's a 401k? You know, <laughs> those are things you don't get when you have parents like mine. And they, and they weren't perfect. And Adam's family is not perfect. But you touched on something really critical, which is even though Adam's brother and mother were pretty horrible to him, they're still family. And family is complicated and our feelings about them are complicated and it makes perfect sense that Adam would help them out, even though he doesn't like them very much. He, he doesn't, but he also discovers things along the way. And I don't want to say any spoilers, so I'm going to just be very cryptic here as well, that there are things that are revealed that he didn't really necessarily have the most accurate recollections of some of the things that happened when he was a child that may explain why some of the things some of the people are responding the way they are and that they may have different experiences of Bobby and Adam grew up in the same household, but they had different ideas about things and different experiences and takeaways, which also kind of explain why Bobby would be like, yeah, I want to get as far from this as possible. While Adam may be like, 
okay, well, when I get out of Liberty House, I'm going to go to the one person who still accepts me, which is his aunt Sue, who is like a great aunt. She's not, she's not just one level up. She's much older. And being able to do that, having that person as, hey, I accept you, where he didn't feel that acceptance otherwise, made a big difference. Yeah, there are 10 years between them. So, and that's important to remember. Also, something that, again, I grew up with is you have your kids young. If I were if I were back home and straight, and I would probably be a grandpa by now. So that that kind of when there was a point in in this where we were talking about how old his mother Tilla May was, and I was doing the math and I was trying to not have a heart attack because I had my kids. I guess I would say a little later, and the idea that I could be pretty close to being a grandmother now is just is scary. But I do know friends who had kids right out of high school who are grandparents now, and I go. Okay, different families, different generational lines. So sometimes they're a little squished together. If you start having kids at 16 and 17, you can add up those generations pretty fast. Yeah, Lisa yeah, and Luna says so much truth. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, there were plenty of girls in my high school who had babies at 16, 14 mm-hmm. sometimes even. And there's there's one of one of my stepmothers did a lot of analysis trying to understand why that persists in the culture of where I come from. And yeah, it's, it's not uncommon for somebody to be, you know, in their forties and early forties and be a grandparent. So I could be a grandparent. That's awesome, David. Thank yeah. you so much. Sorry. No, <laughs> if, if it makes you feel any better to write trailer park trickster, because it do, the, the theme of the book is no more binder family secrets. I mm-hmm. had to sit down and write out a whole family tree for the binders going back several generations and figuring out a lot of things. And I was doing a lot of research on my own family at the same time. And I realized somewhere in the writing that Adam was born in the year 2000. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> then I did the math and realized that I'm actually older than Tilla May. Oh no. So if, like, that no. Makes you feel, if that makes you feel anything, the fact that I'm older than Adam's mom. And there's a great moment when the, when the guys are like, you know, mom, as you get older, she's like, I'm not even 50. What are you talking about? Well, because there's also a point where they're discussing, oh, well, she could still have a love life and acting like, oh, this is a foreign concept as if once you hit, what, 27, you're not allowed to have one anymore. You either just go off, get married and go away or and then you also mentioned Vic and he's he's the, one of the other main characters. And I, I love Vic so much, even if they they botch his name 20 times. Uh, it, most of the characters can't get his poor name right, but he comes from a very different family, very different dynamic, different cultural background. And I feel like you handled that really sensitively too, but even just how these two families kind of start blending together, Adam's relationship with Vic's family, Vic's fa- relationship with Adam's family. Was any of that drawn from any of your own experience or were you just, you were just pulling from how you wish it could be maybe? Well, so I did, I use sensitive, sensitivity readers for Vic, since um, Vic, Vic is Vic Martinez, um, since he is Mexican or Mexican-American. That's not my experience. And I wanted to be careful about that. So I spoke with sensitivity readers and hired them and talked to them to make sure that I wasn't, and, and I liked playing with some of the stereotypes. Again, I grew up very white person, rural area with a, a lot of racist notions that I'm, you know, always having to question and purge, or do I have those in my head? So I like in the first book, particularly when Adam first meets Vic's family, I love that scene because all these stereotypes get flipped on their head or all these ideas. Adam has to immediately challenge himself about things. Um, so that was a really important thing for me to do is to show. And I wanted the Martinez family to be a complete contrast to the Binder family. They are very, for example, they tell each other everything. 
So Adam comes into their home the first time and has this conversation. He thinks he's carrying all these secrets about his magic or about what happened. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but when he met Vic and the Martinez family already knows all about it. Vic's mm -hmm. told him he has no secrets with them. He's very open about it all. And for Adam, that's such a just, you know, complete 180 from what he knows where his family won't talk about anything, whereas they talk about everything. Adam, and, you know, Adam's mother is like my mother, um, high school Oklahoma education, not not a worldly person. Vic's mother, Maria, is a professor. She teaches yeah. history. She's she's much more, I don't know, just much more sophisticated and much more educated and somebody that Adam immediately is a little like, wow, okay, this is so different than my family dynamic. And I, I love, I had so much fun playing on that. Well, and I also love A, that she's a professor and B, I think there's a joke early on where Adam says something about like, oh, how many brothers do you have? And Vic throws out a ridiculous number to play on the stereotype of, oh, it must be this really large. It's like, no, I have the one brother, you know, it's just, it's just Jesse. It's fine. But he has his own suppositions that you address and take right on rather than just kind of push them under the blanket or under the, under the rug. Like we aren't going to talk about these things. Like, no, Adam's going to voice some of these things and have them confronted and just addressed right away rather than push them off to the side and pretend, Oh, well, we don't, we don't really know about these things. And, and then even their experience because Denver is a, is a little bit more cosmopolitan that Vic's comfortable being with Adam versus Adam's like, we can get beat up for just sitting together that that's a real juxtaposition. Was was any of that from your own experience about, okay, I don't know, I don't know how it's okay to be out, or I don't know how I'm gonna be perceived in this in this town. Absolutely. And it's so definitely a darker theme to talk about, but I want to talk about it because again, I don't want I don't want all this stuff clouding out there. In the second book, Adam learns that he had a cousin who of another generation who was gay who was murdered, who died. And that was something that I found out about only a year ago that I had an, I had an older cousin who, when I was one was murdered and because he was gay and that's something my family didn't talk about. I had another cousin who died of AIDS when I was in high school. Um, he had a sister who was a lesbian who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, but I never knew she existed because my family erased these people. They hid them and I named them and mentioned them in the acknowledgements for trickster because I wanted to kind of try to bring them back a bit. I wanted them to know they're not forgotten. There's when I first came to Denver, I had to go through that of, you know, I, I grew up with a father who would brag about going to Will Rogers park in Oklahoma city, which was the cruising park and taking pot shots at gay people. Just talk and just talking you know, as if it was just a casual thing to, to, to fire off a bullet at someone at random and never know if you hit them or not. Never know if you killed someone or not. So for me, when I first got to Denver and finding a community, finding people, it was a bit of a culture shock and not being able to fit in well because I had that rural background or had that rural fear. You know, I was dating a guy and we, while we were in Capitol Hill, we were, you know, in what you would consider the, the safe or, you know, LGBT, LGBT neighborhood of Denver, he wanted to hold hands and my, I was like, no, I, I don't do that in public because I'm used to, you know, I don't know who's going to throw something out a car window or, you know. Or take stop. a pot shot. Yeah, or take a literal pot shot, unfortunately. Well, I had no idea. I assumed all of this was just from your own imagination and your own great well of creativity. 
And I guess I'm just both floored that there's so much realism in this. Obviously, I'm, I'm going to just have to come out and ask, are there elves in your life? <laughs> no, I'm afraid that uh, okay. none of the magic or elves are true. But that part's all. But that's part of it is when you grow up in that kind of environment, you long for escape. So yeah. being able to imagine another world, imagine another place, um, things like Star Wars, you know, it's like, oh, there could be something else. Star Trek, which showed me a much better version of the world in the future. That was those were such important things to me as a kid, a comfort that maybe there is more to this than just, you know, a trailer in the woods in the mud. Well, and a trailer in the woods in the mud is a great setting for a story, but I can understand maybe not wanting to live there your entire life, especially if going along with that is a culture that your own family says, we will kill you for who you love and we won't even acknowledge you to the rest of your family. So I can understand wanting to reach for the stars quite literally or, the moon. I, I love that you have the moon behind you. I'm like, is that just for my show? Because I appreciate it, but I, I have a feeling that's there all the time. That's a, there's a good origin story behind that that I'll tell you later if you like. Okay. We have time, but <laughs> and I will say that I've reached a piece with my family that I didn't have when I was a kid. They've come a long way. My mother passed away a few months ago, but we we reached a piece um, before she did, and I really appreciate that. So, but I had to do a lot of that on my own terms. I had to, I had to educate myself on my own terms. I didn't, again, I didn't have people to tell me how to go to college, how to form my life in a way. So I'm like Adam, I'm kind of behind in some manners there that comes up often. Bobby mentions it where Adam is not as socially developed as he should be for a 20, 21 year old. And the simple truth is he was having those young adult experiences in his early 20s because he didn't get to have them as a teen. And that's something I completely wrote from experience where when I first started dating and meeting guys, I was 23 going on 18 because I hadn't had, you know, a lot of that experience before. And, you know, it was it was messy and as <laughs> young adulthood and new adulthood can be. Well, yeah, if you're if you're looking for people who are emotionally your age, you can't actually date 16 and 17 year olds. But at the same point in time, you might not be a good match for someone who is around your age because they're like, what is wrong with you? And you're like, I'm still figuring it out, getting there. But you might need to be more patient with me yeah, as I figure those things out. Definitely took me longer than I wanted, but I, <laughs> I hope I got there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Years of therapy, right? Ther therapy is good. Therapy is therapy is very uh well. Okay, so you've been mentioned therapy. That's kind of a funny subject because in the second book you mention how so one of the characters Sue is in many ways kind of the trailer park version of a therapist, and I had never considered the fact that something like someone doing tarot reading could be a form of therapy. Do you want to tell me a little bit about where that came from? Yeah, and I think that's very true. So when you are when you are isolated or you are rural and you a lot of people will try to find it in religion, right? So they try to find it in organized religion. Uh, for a lot of people their their priest or their preacher is their counselor. They don't have you know you don't have therapy or if there's any kind of stigma around secular secular psychotherapy which I had a lot of with my family, then you you try to find that kind of angle where you can, a lot of what Sue was doing for her clients wasn't just using her site to read their future, but to actually try to help them. So she takes on more of a counselor role. Counselor role. If you think of like, um, I guess it's a bit of a stretch, but Counselor Troy on Star Trek, right? <laughs> she could read people's emotions and stuff. And she can kind of use that. But, she, but there is a whole psycho 
you know, psychoanalyst angle to to her job, I would guess. I don't think we ever got to see too much of that of her. Um, no, she was probably would be boring, you know. Oh, for Sue or for Troy? For Troy, but... No, she but was too busy eating chocolate sundaes. Or getting possessed. She got possessed a lot. Or um, not dreaming. That happened too. Yeah. But yeah, for Sue, that was, that was kind of a role she was playing in her community in the trailer park. And we get to see that where there's a moment in Trickster where the community comes together to... Um, to mourn her. Um, I guess there's a spoiler, but that's Sue does die. That's a, sorry guys. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the community that she, that she was part of and supported and serviced came, comes to her funeral and Adam gets to see all the people that she touched. And that's a, um, it's a very good emotional moment for him. Well, and another spoiler, I guess then is her cat's okay. So if anybody's worried about her cat spider, Spider goes and has Spider's own adventures. But but yes, I, I think the way that you talked about Sue, that because of her sight, she could know what needed to be said and not necessarily telling the person just the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but what they needed to hear and whether it meant, yeah, you do need to go to the doctor for this. Don't, don't overlook that. Or maybe you shouldn't go back to this person because it's not safe for you, those kind of things. And when they didn't necessarily need to hear the whole truth because it wouldn't do them any good and there's nothing they could do about it anyway. And I thought that was a really interesting way of, of addressing the idea of a tarot. And then you contrast it with someone else who's trying to do tarot and what their approach is. And it was clearly a lot more like what's in it for me and how can I take advantage of people? And uh, please tell me there's nobody like Jody in your real life, because if so, I'm already sorry. So, oh, I, I don't know if I want to say that on the internet. Me <laughs> later. Jody, Jody is based on someone I'm related to. Oh boy. And Jody and my my poor partner got to meet that person this spring, and then came back and said, "Wow, Jody is so much better and more redeemable." <laughs> so that's a, no. that's a there's a painful truth. But yeah, there are there are people out there who don't can't see by can't see beyond themselves, and I like that Sue. Exactly what you said. Sue Sue might see the whole truth, but part of how you deliver part of how you deliver medicine is delivering it in, in a way that people can accept or understand. And one of the things I really like is if you if you have somebody who's a good therapist or somebody who does good tarot or counseling, they don't tell you anything you don't already know. They're just pointing out something you didn't necessarily want to accept kind of saying, hey, you know this thing, this elephant in the room sitting over there? Maybe go look at the elephant a little bit more and deal with that elephant, and then things might work out for you a little better. Edits are weirdly very much the same way. My editors pass me notes. I'm like, yeah, he's <laughs> totally right about that. Okay, so dealing with editors, did you get a lot of changes to the drafts of either White Trash Warlock or Trailer Park Trickster, or are these, uh, are these fairly intact versions of what came out from here? They're fairly intact versions. There were a couple of cuts. Um, I've got the third book now on my desk, Debbie Druid, so I'm working through that. And it has a few more, probably just because I want to, and I'm really glad because I want to make sure I stick the landing for the readers. But for Warlock, there were two flashback scenes where Adam leaves Liberty House mm -hmm. and when Sue gives him the car. So they asked me to cut those. They thought they didn't add anything and they slowed the pace. But you know what? It was actually really nice because I put those into Trickster and they fit so nicely into Trickster. So cutting them was a really good move. And other than that, it was mostly about trying to bring clarity to the magic system, to the story. Because Adam 
Adam's power is very soft. He's not this fireball wielding wizard or, you know, this demon witch who can, you know, cast a circle that covers half the city. He's much smaller in his power scale. So his power is kind of gauzy almost. It's very, it's sort of vague because it's very dreamlike. Since he doesn't have all of that juice behind his magic, I left his magic kind of vague because he's he's seeing through mist. He's seeing through fog. And sometimes that meant I left it a little too vague. So my editor kind of helped me and my agent as well. She's very editorial, helped me bring that more into focus. Well, and I was going to say, I loved that he isn't this overpowered protagonist because I've read a lot of those. One of the cliches right now that I'm kind of over is the, the badass protagonist who comes in and just everything gets blown out of their way because they're fired up and can do everything. But you even use that to your advantage because there are times when Adam's like, because I'm low powered, I'm under the radar. That it's like, I'm not really worth noticing so I can get closer to the bad thing before the bad thing goes, oh, hey, there's a thing down there that maybe I should squash where everything that would have been a little bit higher energy would have been just crushed out. Was that a deliberate choice or was that like a happy accident? No, I wanted that for sure. Because that cliche of, of the overpowered badass is something that drives me a little nuts. And you you see it in, sometimes in genre where it's a Sailor Moon problem. If your main character keeps getting more and more powerful, how do you keep making the threats match them? I liked the idea that Adam was like this little ant wandering around like, oh, please don't crush me. But again, he can see things that other people can't. He can sneak in because he no one spots him. So he's a little bit, he's good at recon. He would definitely not be good at you know, combat on the magical plane. And every once in a while, though, he does forget and gets cocky. And when he screws up, you'll notice about once per book, there's a moment where Adam gets cocky about mm-hmm. his power level. And it always blows up in his face. Like It does. And he fortunately has some people on his side who have more than he does, who are able to save his ass and go, um, Adam, no. No, dear. Mm-mm. Yeah. And some of those like dealing with, say, like you said, Argent and Silver and basically these elves who are on his. I mean, I, I, I make the face of on his side because it's not always clear. Like, hey, are you are you guys allies? Are we friends here or do we all hate each other? I'm not I'm not always entirely sure. I'm not sure they're entirely sure half the time. There's some mixed feelings there. Frenemies, really. Yeah, There's a frenemy, frenemy. angle. Um, Frenemies. And- Adam's, Adam's relationship to Silver is very complicated if you read the books. And I, so Silver is the Knight of Swords, and it, who is counter to his twin, the Queen of Swords, Argent. Argent just wants to protect the crown, um, have a good time, steal cars, and mm-hmm. you know blow stuff up when she's in the mood. So she, she's a well, little simpler. We were, we were joking beforehand that I, I like to play the license plate game and smack people around. I would not get in a car with Argent because um, Argent does not drive the speed limit. And Argent, I mean, yeah, the road trip could go badly, but also I feel like Argent probably controls the car more by power than actually driving, just based on how you described her. She made me a little bit nervous. Yeah, she's scary. Uh, she's <laughs> one of the, and Adam is, and that's where Vic kind of, Vic doesn't know to be scared of her. Whereas Adam's like, yeah, don't, when he first figures out what she is, he's like, please don't crush me. Yeah. Well, and I like that you incorporated something that's kind of the high fantasy trope, but in a non high fantasy way. Like I I think when I would describe these, I know they're listed as LGBTQ plus 
uh, fantasy, they're urban fantasy, but there's a, a high fantasy element there too, because you're factoring something like these, the kingdom of elves, but because you're going back and forth between them, it doesn't, I, I don't want to throw anybody who writes or loves high fantasy under the bus, but you are getting lost in these feudal worlds where you're having to learn some really complicated system and God forbid, like a whole extra language or currency or anything like that, because it, it's still very grounded throughout that. Was was that a deliberate choice as well? Or did you just very, play? Very much so. So I, okay. I also write epic fantasy, though I haven't published any yet. And my epic fantasies are about 100,000 words long. I don't want, I don't, books are expensive. <laughs> books take time. Yeah. Um, they're hard to sell. Frankly, it's a difficult, epic's a difficult market. And epic readers, epic readers want that. They want that very engrossive, reread experience. They'll go back and read Game of Thrones over and over and tease out all those little things. And that's totally great. But that's, that's, I get bored by travel log a lot. So um, I, the last epic fantasy I read, and it was a long time ago, so don't worry about figuring out who the author was. It's like, and then they went here and there was eight, there were eight trees. And on the second tree on the right, there were 10 branches. And on the eighth branch of the 10 branches, there were 23 leaves. What does this have to do with anything? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I'm just, and, and just are or, or on the, you know, it's the first day of his eighth year. And for breakfast, he had a boiled egg. I'm like, I don't care. So but they probably even told you the rare bird that that boiled egg came from. And that's maybe symbolic or possibly will be a, I don't know, Chekhov's egg for later that the bird factors in when it's extinct. I don't know. Yeah, I no, think it, I read that book though, the, the one you were talking about with the, leaves on the tree and i do enjoy some epic fantasy but i do find and as someone who writes fantasy or speculative fiction it is hard when it feels like okay readers always want your game of thrones your king king click i can't even say it king killer chronicles i'm not sure if rothfuss meant for that to be something that was a tongue-tied word but king killer chronicles same kind of thing and again these are long books and, and you've got to invest a lot of time and invest in the world. And sometimes it's nice to have something where your starting point in, well, in White Trash Warlock, it's a pool hall or a dive bar that happens to have pool. And it brings you into this world that, okay, maybe I haven't gone to this specific bar, but I can feel it. And maybe I didn't run into lizard people because that hasn't been my own experience of the lizard people dealing with me later. But you know, that that's, you know, that we are still in the fantasy world and it's not just going to be regular fiction unless, I don't know, we established you don't, you don't have any elves. Do you have any lizard people or lizard conspiracy theories you want to share with us? Well, the, the lizard conspiracy theory of the Saurians is actually mm -hmm. about our airport, which if you heard that plane go by a minute ago, was perfect. Okay. So the Denver International Airport, there are all these urban myths about it and one of which is that beneath it are the saurians and that 500 children go missing a year from the airport but the government covers it up because the saurians are allowed to snatch and eat them um multiple multiple and the, the airport actually has a museum to the conspiracy theories about it in the airport which is really cute <laughs> So if you're ever in DIA, the artwork is super weird. So they did they did definitely choose some strange art pieces. But if you're ever in the Denver airport, definitely try to check out some of the um, conspiracy theories around it. It's really cute right now because it's under construction. Unfortunately, it has been forever. But everywhere are these banners, like up against a wall where a section's walled off that says, is it 
is it just a new food court or is it area 52? <laughs> is it the, is it the new, is it the new headquarters of the lizard people or is it just a Wendy's? So it's, I it's mean, really can fun. it be both? The yeah. Sorens need to eat too. And maybe if you provided a better food court with maybe a Cinnabon or a Sparrow, they wouldn't need to steal children. Yeah. If the Panda Express hadn't gone out, none <laughs> of this would have started. Right. So. <laughs> I mean, if you can kill two Saurian birds with one stone and then is it a Saurian egg that the guy was eating in the high fantasy? Maybe. Cause that would be I, a really big egg. I'm pretty sure it was a chicken egg. I'm pretty oh. sure that that egg had nothing to do with anything. And I was just tortured with two paragraphs about it for no reason. And you know, sometimes you go, that could have used an editor too. <laughs> so sometimes you go, thanks editor for leaving all of this in. I'm sure that added to, added to the world building that no one asked for, but okay. So you said it really quickly earlier, but you said stick the landing. So does that mean that Deadbeat Druid wraps this and it will be a trilogy? It is definitely a trilogy. The first arc is three books. So White Trash Warlock, Trailer Park Trickster, Deadbeat Druid wraps what I call the death arc. Um, that's the, you can tell from the little skull on there, there's a motif. Um, so yeah, so the first three books are the death arc and it's very subtle at the top. It may not be on the art copy. I don't know. Oh, it is, but I had to get it in the right light because I was looking down here, but the, the skull's way up at the top there. Yeah. So, there we go. So okay. The first three books are the death arc of the series. If people respond to it, if people buy them, so there's my pitch, um, there's my plug, and you like them, tell people, you know, it. Um, hopefully we get more. If we do, I have the next three pithy titles ready to go. I have treatments for them bulleted. I'm not going to touch it until we, you know, the publisher says, yes, we want more. I also do have a spinoff that we've pitched to Blackstone. So I hope that if people resonate with, there's one character in book two, you're probably thinking of exactly who it is, who would feature in um, the spinoff. A certain I'm thinking emo, I'm going, who would be the spinoff character? A certain emo chaos monkey. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. And he, Took so me, I'm hoping, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, um, I'm hoping the spinoff happens, but either way, if, if you, if we only get these three, we don't get the spinoff, we don't get more books, all of the major mysteries, all of the major questions will be wrapped up by the end of Deadbeat Druid. So I won't leave you hanging. Well, and I appreciate that because the idea of, okay, well, I don't have a contract for the next book, but I'm not going to finish the story either. And then readers are just left going, what are we, are we just not going to finish this? And I know sometimes it happens with television shows sometimes too, because they don't necessarily know when they're starting, how many seasons they'll get. And then they map out, okay, the mystery is going to take this long to resolve. And then you have to hope that the network gives them that many series because otherwise then you're going, okay, I'm never going to understand what's happening on the show. And I just give up. But I was going to say, you, you said that the first book ends with a hook and then you would say this one ends with more of a, would you say that's more of a cliffhanger? Oh, that's a true cliffhanger. Okay. Yeah. So just go into it knowing that so you can't write hate mail to David later that there's a cliffhanger because he's telling you straight out and the next book is coming so you can be patient. And I actually do hope you pitch the spinoff as a certain chaos monkey or a certain emo chaos monkey because I would buy that just based on the title alone. But if I'm, if I'm guessing right as to which character, that would be absolutely worth it. Uh, can you tell us at all about the high fantasy that you're writing? Sure. So I have a couple of them. Um... Wow, we have two of them on submission right now. One is this, think of it like Romeo and Julian set in a dark Venice Ooh. where the moon has died. 
And when the Is moon went out, behind you. Oh, not that moon. Okay. Well, I was hoping. Oh, but I have a great prop for this to discuss it. I want to see the prop. So my friend made me an action figure. You have an action figure. <laughs> she made me an action figure, which was the coolest thing ever. So that, that she is made the it coolest thing ever. I was very, very touched. She also has rheumatoid arthritis, so it was a ton of work and, and literal pain for her. And I, I'm like, I can't believe you did this for me. But they um, made you an action figure. She she literally hacked apart different dolls and made some of the clothes herself and found other outfits. She printed out all the little pieces. She did it. a character summary from my, cause she helped me proof my pitch. Mm -hmm. And then she um, did this fantastic. This is the bottom of the box. <laughs> Thank you. She also you lets you know that the other the character Kinos is sold separately, which was fantastic. Oh, is she going to make you a Kinos too? Um, I think if we ever get the deal, I may have to talk her into it somehow, if I can. You're like, I will pay you, please. I would like another doll. It seems awful to ask, though, because she has really bad RA. But so it's it's about Rafe, a boy who... Now I have to give you the whole thing right now. I've teased yeah. it too much. So <laughs> basically, the, the, the moon goddess died. Rafe is her last worshiper. And her death stopped the tides, caused this, the cycle of life to slow. So babies aren't being born. But most of the worst thing is that without the moon, the ghosts of the dead don't have a way to get to the underworld. Oh. So they're haunting and hunting the living. And it is, it's very, it's very action adventure fantasy. Like we just talked about, I, it's a hundred thousand words. So it's really just right in my sweet spot of length. And it's got a beautiful con contrast between what's going on with Rafe and the second point of view character, very much a enemy so it's got a whole Romeo Julian in Venice by night with no moon with ghosts. And it's just got everything that I love about epic or high fantasy thrown in. It's got really cool, um, really cool monsters and creepy. The, the ghosts really creepy and the gods occasionally pop up a little bit in a vague way, which I like that with gods. So yeah, it's, it's kind of the book of my heart. So I'm hoping we uh, hope we get to see it soon. Well, I hope so too, because that, that sounds fantastic. And you, you have me at basically treating the moon as this, this entity. And I don't know if you're a fan of the television show, The Magicians, but the uh, the last season featured a group called The Lunatics, which I'm like, yeah, I'll go be a lunatic, which involves you've got to stay awake for like three days, four days straight in order to become a lunatic. And I think maybe if we stay awake for like three or four days straight, we can get you a book deal. So I'm sure well, it's maybe, magic. It's definitely what I, and you'll notice the moon is a very big theme in all of my work, even in, you know, the Adam series. So, well, I love it. Well, and David, I hate to say this, but we are running out of time here. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us this week on to the moon, Allison. And I love the moon back there, which if it wasn't for me, but that's fine. I'm still happy to take it. And I would love for everyone to come back and join us next month, November 9th, where I will be joined by our first romance author. Cause I know we've been doing mostly sci-fi and fantasy, but we will be having Leah Louie or Leah Lewis with eight perfect hours on November 9th. And this has been a copywritten podcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I want to thank our producer and executive producer, Rowan Sirison and Pam Stack. And thank you so much, David, for joining us. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>